0: Good morning. It's good to see you. If we've not met yet, my name is Luke. I'm one of the pastors here, the teaching pastor. I'm excited to go through Psalm 90 with you today. So if you have a Bible or device, that's going to be the one that's going to be very helpful for us. It's going to teach us our Bible, show us a picture of God and the person of Christ that's going to maybe make him a little bit more clear for you. Psalm 90. Go Vols, by the way. (laughs) It's a tough night last night, but we got an extra hour of sleep to sleep it off, so we've got Missouri this week, and here we go. Um, Some of you, by the way, if you're not from Knoxville and you just moved in, it's probably like you're at a zoo, right? Watching how our fan base reacts from week to week, you'll catch up. It's addicting. Um, Hey, listen, a couple phrases that were not on Google Trends even two years ago. Um, that have been really big in just headlines is the great resignation and quiet quitting. You've probably seen that in passing headlines and wondered what it is. If you don't know what those phrases mean, you're totally normal. They've not been around for very long. They're both connected to our economy and I would say somewhat loosely connected to each other. The Great Resignation is just nothing more than a reshuffling of our marketplace. It's where people are leaving one job either to stay in unemployment or they're leaving one job or career to jump into another one. Um, Probably the leading industries that have seen this have been physicians, nurses, teachers, and pastors. Those have been the top four so far. Quiet quitting, not the same thing, but slightly connected is where employees are basically rebelling against hustle culture. And they're only going to do the basic minimum of the job's requirements. So gone are the days of going the extra mile, staying an hour later. They're they're mailing it in, as the phrase goes, but they are no longer looking to overachieve. Gallup found out in recent polls that that is over 50% of our workforce right now is quietly quitting, 50%. So whether you agree with the philosophy of it or or not, it is. It's, it's a thing. It's a real thing. It has cultural implications for us. Um, I'm not sure about this, but I feel like the pandemic was a little bit of a match to kind of set off these phenomenon, the, the whole idea of handling our workplace a little differently because everyone was effectively involuntarily placed in this space, this mental space where we had time to think about what it is we're doing with our lives, and that might have been some of you just had time to reflect. Maybe we have options, right? A lot of people asking the question, is this how I want to spend the rest of my days? Is this what I want to do for the rest of my life, for the next 50 years? How am I even doing? Do I even enjoy this? I'm not even sure. Instinctively, we all know that This life is brief. Even if you're here and you do not love Jesus, you know this, by the way. And if you're here and you don't love Jesus, I'm very glad that you're here. If you're watching and you're just maybe kind of scouting what this thing called Christianity and the gospel is, very excited to have you be here, especially for a sermon like this in Psalm 90. But instinctively, whether you are far from Christ or close to Christ, we know our life is brief. So doing something we don't want to do for the rest of our lives just feels kind of dumb. Feels kind of silly right? Now, I've got no intention of resigning or quietly quitting, um, but I've had moments of reflections, that mental clarity, that space at funerals, of all things, right? I've done a lot of funerals. I've been in a lot of funerals, and funerals force me to reflect on the vapor of life. That's what it's done in the past, Especially that photo reel you see before the funeral kicks off. You know, if you've ever been to one, I'd say seven out of eight that I've been to will typically have a photo carousel on some big screen up there. Just glimpses of the person's life from early childhood all the way through. And those, man, those pictures get me you'll see like a young man holding on to the back of a bicycle while his firstborn is learning how to ride, right? Now that firstborn is 65 years old and sitting on the front row, and you're thinking, wow, life moves kind of quick. Or you'll see a a 13-year-old girl enjoying a birthday party, and it looks like there's a filter on the picture, but there's not a filter. It's just a really old picture, right? But now that that 13-year-old girl's grandchildren are there celebrating a life well-lived. Man, I tell you, I look at those pictures and I think the same thing that you probably think. Life moves quick. And I can't slow it down. And I'm no exception. I've grown up hearing people say this to me. Hey, Luke, you know, the years are going to go by fast. Your kids, they grow up quick. You get old fast. You better brace yourself. And hearing that as a young person, I would kind of believe it. Not really, though. Kind of. The older I get, I realize it's no cliche at all. I look in the mirror, and I realize nothing at all is slowing down. I mean, the older I get, I also am much more prone to ask the question, is this what I want to do for the rest of my life? How am I doing anyway? Am I winning? Is this what winning looks like? Is it what it feels like? I mean, how am I doing as a husband How am I doing as a father, as a pastor, as a friend? How am I doing as a Christian? How am I doing? In other words, to borrow a phrase from the self-help community, am I investing my life or am I just spending it? Is my life just like cranking quarters into a snack machine or am I investing beyond myself? You know, Psalm 90 is a big psalm for us. It's one that Moses wrote. Some say it's the only psalm he ever wrote, and this makes it the oldest psalm in your Bible, and he contends with how we fill this vapor of life. And I'm glad he's writing it. I'm fine with the Psalms of David. I love David's life. Moses' life, quite a bit different. Moses lived what feels like 10 lifetimes, right? I mean, this guy was either involved in it, in the fat middle of it, but he has seen it all. He has done it all. He's been in the wilderness. He's crossed rivers. He's crossed a sea. He's battled bandits, a pharaoh, he's seen miracles, tabernacles, manna, the list goes on and on and on. If his life was a book, it had a lot of chapters to it. Moses. So when a guy like that sings a song about the span and the scope of life, I'm listening. I say he gets the floor. I'm interested in what he has to say. And typically when we go through a passage together as a church on Sunday morning, we will read all the way through the passage and then I'll just give you the main idea. I give you the punchline right at the beginning. I think it's important that we say that our passages have a main idea um, and it might have multiple interpretations to different people, but we believe that the Bible has one interpretation. It might have different applications. We're going to find a couple applications in our passage today. But it does have a main idea. God is wanting to get something across to you and to me. I'm going to give it to you straight up before we go into the passage today because it unpacks itself. And I want to let the passage do what it does very well. But the main idea of what Moses is trying to get across is that you and I are to wisely invest the moments we have in our short life with a lot of wisdom. With a lot of wisdom, we are to wisely invest in our brief lives. So this is how he's going to say it in Psalm 90, and we will find Christ very clearly in this. We're just going to read a little bit and then hit a pause button, but this is what it says for us in verse 1. Moses says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is a past or as a watch in the night. You sweep them away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and it withers. There he is. Let's pause right there. There he is telling us. Man, life is moving very quick. And he uses some powerful pictures for us to get this. Man, dust. Dust being one of them. Now he's borrowing very heavily from Genesis, how man came from dust and then returns to dust. But even just the idea of dust, how quickly it settles. Or, or grass that grows and is green just for a split second and then it withers. Or dreams, which are my favorite. You've probably woke up one morning and thought, man, that dream was Crazy. And by the time you're done thinking, hey, that dream was crazy, now you only remember 70% of it, right? And then your feet hit the ground and you start brushing your teeth, you remember like 10% of it, and by the time lunch comes around, you have zero memory of what that dream was. And that's not just true for you, that's true for Moses. He says, hey, that's, what's, that's what life is like. And it's like a flood that comes in and washes away all of that. Powerful imagery. Right? But do you sense his frustration a little bit as an older man, his frustration, because it's there. And it provokes the question in me and in you, what do we do about it? What can we do about it? I mean, do we avoid this fact that the years are going to tick by faster and speed up and our memories are going to kind of fail? Do we, do we avoid it? Do we pretend it's not happening? Maybe, maybe we joke about it? Because, I mean, Moses has an opportunity to do all of these things, and he does none of these things. I catch a sadness and a bit of a frustration, which makes sense. Because one of the things the fall shows us is that when sin entered the garden, cracking mankind, it took a people of unnumbered days, and now our days are numbered. Numbered. And we all have one. It will be our last one. Now, because of this fall in the garden, one day we're drawing crayon pictures of our family, and the next day we're writing eulogies for that same family with the same hand. And that's life. Are you sad yet? Welcome to Legacy Church, by the way, where we work really hard to lift everybody's spirits. No, just playing. There is good news in all of this because when we embrace the brevity of life, the brief nature of life, that is actually one step closer to redeeming it, to reclaiming it, to recovering the beauty of it. But before we're even able to look at that, the news does get a bit tougher before it gets better. Okay, it's about to get a little darker. Let's look at verse 7. And he goes on to say, For we are brought to an end by your anger, by your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins, and the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They are soon gone, and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? All right. I know what you're thinking. Man, this psalm stinks. Right? Moses is not letting us up for air. He's obviously grumpy. He needs a vacation. This is a difficult psalm. Because what he's saying is not only are our days short, they're, they're firmly under judgment. All of them. Right? Wrath, anger, hot anger is justifiably aimed at our sins, both public and secret sins. Squarely at it. God is justified in bringing his anger against our sin. And that is not an overreaction. Let me be clear here. God is not overstepping by carrying this wrath to mankind. He's not being inappropriate. You know sometimes you see someone react with an anger, and it's just an inappropriate anger. That's not what's happening here. Yet that is exactly what it feels like to so many people. And I understand that. I think one of the things that's helped me understand this a little bit more, and this was something that was taught to me when I was a much younger Christian, is that we usually find... Intuitively, we understand that judgment and punishment escalate with the authority of the victim. Depending on the person that is grieved by our aggression, depending on their authority, it kind of determines the judgment and the punishment. So if you were to go today to Trader Joe's and just punch somebody, right, not that anyone's ever wanted to do that at Trader Joe's. That's hypothetical. I'm just playing. Everybody in here has wanted to do that at Trader Joe's, right? But if you were to do that, you will be arrested. They will put cuffs on you and take you in. But chances are, unless you've done it several times at Trader Joe's, you'll probably sleep in your own bed that night, right? Probably. But if you walk to the Capitol building and find a senator and punch them out, you will also be arrested and you will probably not spend that night in your bed. Why? It's a senator the senator you punched. Or if you take a brick, let's say your neighbors were really loud last night because they're Georgia fans and so all you hear is barking all night, barking through the walls, right? And you go out and you take a brick and you throw the brick right through their windshield. The police will show up, right? If it's a sheriff, they'll show up tomorrow. But if it's the police, they'll show up today, right? And you will get in trouble. They'll put cuffs on you, right? Maybe. You're probably going to spend the night in your own bed, right? If you throw that same brick through an officer's squad car's windshield, right, or maybe bounce it off of uh, the the president's limo because nothing's going to break the windshield in that thing, right, but it bounces off, you're going to go to jail for a while. You see how the authority and the weight of the person that is grieved will determine the judgment and oftentimes the punishment, and we all intuitively know this. Well, friends, when we throw bricks at an eternal God who is Pure and just and righteous and good in all ways possible, immeasurably good, immeasurably eternal, we gain an eternal punishment. Is this because he's mean? No, it's because he's just. He's just. Injustice. I mean, we don't like it when it's ignored. Think about the court cases that you've seen where you knew that that defendant was guilty. The whole world knew it. But then the judge just lets them off the hook. The rage you see in people, the rage. They start flipping things over and setting things on fire. Why? What do they say? That is not just. Why do you care? It's God's imprint on you, this declaration for the need of justice. We want justice, and we want our God to be just. You see, God's anger and God's wrath, which is repeatedly in that second chunk of that psalm, it reveals a complete God to us. If you were to remove the wrath and anger of God, it would be to carve some of his glory away. It would be a deduction from who he is. Listen, it's actually a stain on his glory to favor one attribute of God over another, to not hold them equivalently. So, he is complete love and he is complete justice simultaneously. What that means is love doesn't take a step forward while justice takes a step back for a moment. That's not how that works. God is perfect love and perfect justice at the same time. He doesn't put one down to pick the other up. Same thing with vindication and mercy holds them at the same time because he's perfect. Because he's beautiful. These are his attributes. You see, I feel compelled to reinforce this a little bit because removing the wrath of God also empties the gospel of its depth, it takes it away. Highly educated people that I know, that I love, they struggle with the wrath of God because it seems to contradict grace and love. But it doesn't, it brings depth to them. The gospel is valuable because of God's justifiable wrath. Let me say that again so you can quote me later. The gospel is valuable because of God's justifiable wrath. We're under judgment. We're under judgment and we need an answer. And your Old Testament does a pretty good job of showing how mankind has tried to cough up an answer, a remedy for the fact that we are under judgment, whether it's laws or sacrifices, whatever it is. Today we use our performance. We need an answer, though. And the God who displays such hot anger against sin becomes the answer for our dilemma. He is the answer for it. He takes his own punishment in the form of Jesus on a cross. When you see Christ on the cross, that is what you're looking at. That moment where our days go from unnumbered to numbered, back to unnumbered, back to unnumbered. Why? Because the God of wrath is also the God of love. He does spend his punishment and then he accepts it upon himself in the person of Christ on the cross. It's so important that you know this about Jesus. It's so important that you know that when he is on the cross suffering, it's not like he has a, a Captain American shield up there and the wrath of God hits it and bounces off or swerves around him. That's not how it works. And it's not that God the Father looks and sees his son on the cross and says, okay, now I know that you really mean it. We're just going to go ahead and hit "delete on the whole punishment thing. No. He absorbs it for you and me. No shield, no, no bi-week. He takes the entire punishment upon himself, for you and for me. Now here's what's wild about this psalm. Moses didn't know about the cross of Jesus. He's talking a lot about wrath, talking a lot about anger, talking a lot about how our sins are open before him, and yet had no idea. You actually have much more knowledge of God's solution for mankind than Moses did. Listen, you might not even love Jesus. You might not even be a Christian, and you actually know more about God's remedy for man's dilemma than Moses did in the moment. That's fascinating to me. How, I mean, just how profound is that? That Moses is saying here, life is short, and it's under judgment. God help me. And then you and I are to say, hey, life is short, and we have Jesus, and not only God helped me walking on this planet and life under the sun, but God has helped me. He's come close to me in the person of Jesus to take a wrath that was aimed at me. But what, again, you know, what do we do with this? How does the gospel of God establish our remaining days? And we only have so many left. What does the gospel have to do with that? And this is what we're going to see in chapter 12. So go back to chapter 12, and we'll finish the psalm out. Moses says, so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. That's the, that's the pin that holds this together. Right? So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So he's saying this, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Numbering our days is just a, it's another way of saying, help us have perspective, Get, return perspective. You've had those moments of perspective where you thought, okay, I only have so much time left on this earth. These are the things that are valuable. These are the things that are not valuable. That's a little bit of a piece of numbering our days. It's an idea that we have wisdom in what is left, who we are, and what the cosmos is up to. Wisdom, by the way, and it's probably important to talk about this before we go any further, it is not knowledge alone. It's not knowledge detached. Wisdom is knowledge applied, and not just for our glory, but for the glory of God. It's discernment over folly. Wisdom is not just knowing things. I think what we've done is we've devalued the idea of wisdom to just mean education, right? So whenever we say, hey, that's a wise person, what we really are saying is that person knows a bunch, or they're just older, and older people just naturally have more wisdom. Untrue on both accounts. I know older Christians who act like fools, not very wise. Sure, they've experienced things in life, and there is some, some benefit to seeing and experiencing a bunch, but they're still not making wise decisions. And I've seen young people, by the way, that are wise well beyond their years. I, it has nothing to do with education either. I've seen some uneducated Christians that, again, are wise beyond their years, and I've seen some very educated people even Christians who are very unwise. So it's not knowledge. And we're also not talking about the spiritual gift of wisdom here. I think that's important to maybe just note. There is a spiritual gift of wisdom. We have looked at that the last two or three times. We've walked through the spiritual gifts, the role of the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit. We've traveled through that before. Some people are gifted either in a moment or in a season or for a lifetime to just think like Solomon. They're able to just discern a matter and see folly clearly, and see wisdom clearly. And you can kind of sense it when you're around them. You just want to recruit their wisdom into your life because they're so thick with it. The wisdom we're talking about here is the one that is born from beholding God. Beholding God. And I'm going to make the argument of beholding God in the person of Jesus. Because I want to remember here, let's remember that this is Moses singing this song, and it is a song in the ninth inning of his life, a fully lived one at that, right? I mean, think about that for a moment. Think about his resume, the millions that he has led, the brilliant things he has done, the pain he has felt. His resume is second to none, and yet he feels the flood coming. The days are leaking away faster. And you know what he wants? Wisdom. He's looking for wisdom. This guy, looking for wisdom. Lord, I need you to teach me teach me. I'm not in my ninth inning, but I need Psalm 90 bad. I'm not even in my 70s or in my 80s, but I'm half done with my life. And the more my memories fade and the more the wrinkles appear, I realize that without the Lord establishing me in wisdom, I perish. I stand no chance. I'm one bad decision away from being a fool, just from being a parable, blowing everything up. I mean, I look at some of the issues that I'm having to walk through personally, some of the issues I'm having to walk through as a pastor, as a husband, as a dad, and all I'm left with is, God, I need your wisdom. I need you. I have no idea what I'm doing. God help me. Listen, God help us all. The issues you have, the ones you carried in here with you, and we all did, you need wisdom for that. You've got to have wisdom for the matter, to live courageously, we need God to teach us how to number our days, give us perspective, and bring wisdom. You now let's do this, before we walk into any strategy on how to walk in light of the gospel in this, I say I'm just, I just wanna pray for you, just for a moment, that God will grant you and or your household with wisdom. I don't know what it is you brought in here with you, but I know you brought. I know you have things, you just don't know exactly what to do. You might even have a sneaking suspicion of what is foolish and what is wise, but you don't know. You might even feel stuck. Let's just pray for a moment. Lord, we have so much to navigate in our lives, and we have so little time left. Father, I ask that you would lead us away from fruitless days, from just wasted endeavors, that you would teach us perspective through the fact that we have numbered days. Life is not slowing down. Teach us to number our days and live wisely, full of purpose and courage for your glory. Your glory above our comfort. Even though we know that your glory most manifest in our life is where we find the deepest sense of joy. We pray, Father, that we would walk wisely for your glory. But Lord, we need wisdom. And I have no idea all the issues that's represented by, by a room this size but I know that it's, it's legion. So many issues, so many knots that need to be untied. They just kind of walk with us from day to day because we don't know what to do. We don't know what's best. It, it feels like we're choosing between a bunch of good situations or a bunch of bad situations, but nothing is clean cut. Nothing is super clear. Lord, we need you. We need your spirit of wisdom to make things so clear, and then to give us the courage to do it. Oh God, we need you. Oh, we thank you and we offer this prayer in total trust, amen. Friends, listen, if you want wisdom in your life, one of the strategies is to posture your life before God as one who has wonder, weight, and awe, is to have a fear of the Lord. A fear, not a fright, right? That's kind of usually what we think. To, be, to, to, to have a fear of the Lord, he's supposed to, I guess, creep us out or something. We're supposed to, be, supposed to be frightened of him, but that's not what this is talking about. Proverbs 9 defines this connection well. And he says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Okay, again, we're looking for perspective here. Fearing God is holding the Lord with a sense of wonder and awe of who he is, right? Right? But what does that have to do with wisdom? It seems like there are two really good things, but they're kind of disconnected, like two pearls on the same string. Good, not really seeing the connection though. But this is how it works. Wisdom arrives when we establish who God is and then who we are in light of that. That's the perspective we're talking about. That's what it means to have your days numbered well. Who is God? Who am I? And what does that mean for the rest of my days? How I spend my money? How I spend my time? How I spend my imagination? If God is God, that means that I'm not. That's where, that's where wisdom begins. If God is God, then I'm not. That means He defines me and why I'm here. I don't define Him. I don't define why I am still here. He does that. It means to hold him with heaviness, with awe, with wonder, but not with an overfamiliar commonality. That's one of the reasons, not all of the reasons. That's one of the reasons it's considered a sin in the days of Moses in the Ten Commandments to take the Lord's name in vain, to take something that is holy, that has worth to it with heaviness, and then just to treat it like a common piece of furniture. That's one of the reasons, right? You see, a lack of fear makes God common and ordinary, and that's never going to bear any wisdom. This is why, by the way, that those who do not love Jesus are not typically wise. Not typically. I get it. They have moments, just little moments, maybe even little seasons of doing things that are wise. And you see it. And it might even be confusing. All that is is God's common grace. We don't talk about common grace. It's not even all that controversial. We just don't talk about it a lot. All common grace is is God's goodness to mankind, totally despite mankind, whether or not they ever love him or not. Laughter would be one. People laugh all over the world. and they, uh, Half of them don't love Jesus. But the thing is, is that's just a common grace. God gives grace to all people to laugh or to bring a new baby into the world or to have friends or taste good food. It's a common grace. Wisdom can be like that as well, which is why you'll see people in the news or you'll know people make a wise decision, and they don't even love Jesus. But they're making a decision that Jesus might even make. It's common grace. That's all that is. That's all you're seeing. But the wisdom that Moses is applying for right now can only come to hearts that have a proper appraisal of God. Wisdom begins, as we saw last week, with bending the knee before Jesus, before a beautiful, overwhelming, terrifying, and yet enchanting God. One who holds deep wrath righteously because he is just, and yet he answers his own wrath because he is merciful. And probably the most effective way you and I could gain and build this fear of the Lord, this respect and this awe, is just to peer into the gospel story, where Jesus is the centerpiece, the center character of this beautiful story. Because in, in the story of the gospel, we see all of the attributes of God at the same time in this explosive little story. Think about it. Think about all the things that you see in the gospel that are just an angle and attributes of who God is, and he's not relaxing the others while he platforms the prominent one. He is just, and we see that in the fact that he is righteously wrathful upon sin. That's where we get the cross. He's also merciful. That's why it's part of his plan to trade places with us on the cross, to swap out righteousness for unrighteousness. He's graceful to us. Grace just means giving us favor despite us, which means he's allowing us to step foot into his family A family tree we have no right to. He's so thoughtful. He gives us the Holy Spirit to walk with us, enlighten us, empower us, teach us, comfort us. He's so long-suffering. That's why he never quietly quits on you. He's so loving. That's why we find discipline and encouragement oftentimes in the same exact moment. He's so sacrificial. Sending his son to perish where I should have perished. He's abundant because he doesn't hold back all of his riches and treasures, even though that's what we do with people that sin against us. He's so considerate because he brings you and me into context with each other, building a church where he is the head of the church, but we're not alone. We're not alone. We could counsel each other, sharpen each other, lift each other. He's angry. He punishes aggression, but with proper proportion. He's never inappropriate. He's good, coming to us when we deserve his absence. He's mysterious. And the fact that we only see partially, we can't define him and we certainly can't box him in. Yet he's also known because he shows us himself in his law, shows us himself through the prophets and then through his son. He has so many attributes all of them wrapped up together and bundled in the gospel story. So when we behold the gospel and when we adore Jesus and we nurture the affections we have with Jesus, we see the multi-dimension of God in one story. You know, if you're a guest here, they said earlier that We have some material on the front table for you. One of them is the book Gentle and Lowly. We got a ton of those back in the day and we've handed them out. I'll just say this, if anyone in the room does not have that book, you need to grab it before you walk out. It does probably one of the best jobs of showing some of these dimensions of God through the person of Jesus. It does a very solid job. It's what we call Christology or the theology of Jesus. I'll bet it's one of the best I've read. So I I just challenge you to grab one of those and start working your way through it. But we know this from Hebrews. The author of Hebrews says that he, meaning Christ, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's why looking at the gospel is so powerful. That's why adoring Jesus is so powerful. You wanna know who God is? Just look at Jesus, he's God. We see this. The more we explore Christ, the more we see God, the wiser we become, that's the math. That's how it works. But the big question we have to ask is do we treat God commonly? Do we take him in vain, I guess is another way of saying it. Do we just treat him over-familiar? Maybe he's on a good shelf, but it's not a shelf above us sitting on the same shelf. It's a piece of who we are, but we don't hold him with awe or worth or wonder. Friend, there's a lot of room for us to repent in that case a lot. The second big piece of, and the last big piece of application maybe, you could call it a strategy if you want, is just to know that wisdom is dynamic. It's elastic. It's not static, which means it comes and goes. Okay? Comes and goes. You can shrink in atrophy in your wisdom. I've seen folks, and you have too, that used to be wiser than they are today. Today, not so much. I'm not a social media guy at all. For some reason in the last couple months, I've just caught wind or heard or saw of somebody that used to lead me. Somebody, used to, used to have deep influence on my life, mentor me, pastor me, or could just walk before me as a counselor. So wise, helped me through so many things. Now, they're fools, doing foolish things. And I just scratch my head and I think, man, what happened to you? How did you get there? Like you used to be so far in front of me. I used to look at you and think, gosh, if I could just land in the same place that guy's landing. I'm not alone. David said this in Psalm 55. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. Oh, it's so sad when I see things like this. Here's my warning for you. Stop living after yesteryear's devotionals. Find new ones. I get it. College was great, but the Young Life shirt doesn't fit anymore, does it? Right? Build new moments. Groom a new life with Jesus. Build. Collect wisdom. Search. Explore. Discover who Christ is. Wake up. Find wisdom. I mean, I've had seasons like you have. You might be in one today, by the way, where you just look in the mirror and you and you, you say to yourself, or you might even say out loud to others, I used to be in a better place. I've had better days where I sprung out of bed and started quoting some scripture that I memorized. It took a long time to memorize. And you know, I just I used to be in a better place than I am now. Now I just kind of get through the day. We've all had that, right? That's called wisdom atrophy. Folly awaits. This is why you see headlines that read a lot like, pastor blows up church through an indiscretion. Or maybe you see somebody in social media that you think to yourself, what happened to that person? My goodness, they quietly quit Jesus and they're atrophying in wisdom and now they are a living parable. Build wisdom today for tomorrow's issues, for tomorrow's issues. This is so big. You're going to have choices in your future. But friends, if you coast today, you're not going to be able to navigate it tomorrow. You're going to hit a wall, and you're going to say, what do I do? What do I do? You're not going to, you're not going to have any perspective. You're going to be lost in the weeds. Now, now, one wise thing that you can do, whether you love Jesus or not, and you find yourself in that place is just to recruit community just to find people and say, hey, this is my issue. This is the knot I cannot untie. This is the the, the formula I can't balance. Can you help me with this? But I want to be honest. Sometimes I will get somebody come up to me and say, hey, Luke, I've got something I really could use your wisdom on. And then when they put the issue out there, it's nothing more than a softball. And what I'm watching is them panicking because they have not been building, collecting, grooming wisdom. Now, I'm glad they're talking to me. That's wise, right, to recruit counselors. As it says in Proverbs 15, it's good. It's healthy for us. They're wise for asking, but it reveals atrophy. In that same vein, wisdom is compounded in community. There are arenas for wisdom if you find the right community. Asking those around you who are very far ahead of you in Jesus, that's wise. Asking social media, not so much, right? But when people quietly quit the church or fire the church, folly usually follows right after. You're usually gonna see folly. No community, no counselors. But hear me now, the time you develop your affections for Jesus, That time, the time you spend in community growing, the time you spend in front of your Bible reading, just reading, praying, wrestling with it, journaling through it, that time is not spent, it's invested. It's invested for tomorrow because we've all got big things coming our way, not just personally, but the church in general. The times before us are going to make a call for the church's wisdom. Gender. Sexuality, politics, money, family, race, you name it. These are issues. They require wisdom. They require wisdom. It provokes a people to say, God, where would you lead me? How would you have me go? How how would you have me respond to this? How would you have me love this person well? What does loving this person even look like right now? What does wisdom look like? This psalm shows us a very clear formula. Fear God, adore the gospel, collect wisdom, recruit community over and over and over again. And there's room for you and me to just hit our knees and repent before the Lord. Mostly for making God common. Maybe for just sleepwalking, living off of things that we learned 20 years ago, 10 years ago, No recent devotional moments that have broken us in half over God's goodness and his grace. No no beautiful moments of revelation in any time in recent history. We're still borrowing off of the 1990s or the early 2000s. That requires repentance. You're not a victim. That requires a turning. Abandoning community. Quietly quitting. All of these things. There's so much opportunity for us to repent, and I don't know where I find you today, but there's room for all of us. And friends, listen, if you're here or you're watching, and like I said earlier, you are just trying to figure out who Jesus is, what life in the Lord looks like, what the church is all about, I hope you see some of the things, whether you like it or not, I hope it's clear that God is just and he's good, right, at the same time. That he has wrath and he has grace at the same time. And I hope you've seen that you are not God. And if you have and you are there, that's the beginning of wisdom for you. It's the beginning of wisdom. If you see that you have a need and you've been unable to save yourself, friend, that is the beginning of wisdom for you. And you wouldn't have those revelations unless the Holy Spirit was prodding and pushing and poking and drawing. That's... Probably the Holy Spirit working in you. We're about to pray for your heart here in a moment that you would answer and that you too would bend the knee to Jesus as your sole remedy.